0: Matthew 28, it can be found on page 835 in the Pew Bible in front of you, 835. We'll be looking at Matthew 28 and then also 1 Corinthians 11. I'll read these texts as we go. Matthew 28 is on page 835. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, as we turn to your word, would you turn our hearts to you? Would you turn our love and devotion to you and to Christ? Might he be exalted and honored in and through your word as we see the gospel on display, even as we will participate in it uh, as we partake of the Lord's Supper later. So would you work in our hearts now to receive your word? In Jesus' name, amen. Signs and symbols. Signs and symbols. We, we recognize the significance of sign and symbols, signs and symbols in our own day. We observe the value that a logo of a company can have and how they are easy to remember and how they point to the company and how some of these we actually identify ourselves with. If you see the swoosh, you know that what that represents. right? Nike. It symbolizes the wing of the Greek goddess of victory from which the company derived its name. If you see a logo with a, with a bite taken out of an apple, you know what that stands for. Or the golden arches, you, you know what those stand for. That's McDonald's. Or a company that I identified with was the, the red bullseye. Right, Target right i actually had identification with them you think of target these these logos these pictures these signs and symbols draw our attention to what they represent and they become identity markers for the company in a similar way this is what we see with the ordinances of the church with baptism and the lord's supper and so this morning what i want to do is draw your attention to two of the of the corporate activities of the church of the practices of the church Baptism and the Lord's Supper. And this is where we see the gospel displayed in a real, tangible, and visible way. In a sense, they they are outward pictures of an inward reality and our identification with Christ. So first, consider with me, baptism. Look with me now at, at Matthew 28, 16 through 20. So Jesus, having having died and risen, appears to his disciples. And on the basis of his authority, he now commissions his disciples to to make disciples. Because he has authority over all things, his disciples will be able to carry out his mission of making disciples, making followers and, and learners of Jesus Christ who seek to imitate and obey him in all areas of life. All right, as a church, we see that this is our purpose as well, right? To, to make disciples, lifelong followers of Jesus. We see our mission here, up top, above my head. Our mission here at Pleasant Ridge is to know Christ and to make him known. Right? right? So to, to be a disciple ourselves. So we seek to know Christ. We seek to be a disciple ourselves and then to help others be disciples of Jesus. And what we see here in our passage is that the command to make disciples involves three ways in which we are to carry this out. We go, we baptize, and we teach. So baptism is, is what we're focusing on this morning. It's part of what it means to make disciples. Baptism is instituted here by Christ. When Jesus commands his followers to make disciples, they are to do so by baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So baptism is therefore an essential component of discipleship. And by placing it up front and carrying out Christ's mission, baptism becomes the initiation rite into the people of God. When the new believers were baptized, they were included in the church. The apostles taught and directed those who repented of their sins, those who had turned away from their sins and and placed their faith in Jesus to be baptized. This is what this is what the apostles taught. In Acts 2, when the church began, we see the teaching of the apostles and how the believers were baptized and included in the church. When Peter had shared the good news about Jesus at Pentecost, and people became convicted of their sin. They asked Peter, what do we do now? What do we do? And Peter said to them in Acts 2.38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 41, he says this, So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So those who repented, those who received the word, those who believed in Jesus Christ and the good news about him, then they were baptized and added to the church. So baptism was instituted by Christ. It was taught by the apostles, and it was also practiced by the early church. In Acts 8, the the word of God spreads to Samaria. And as Philip proclaimed Christ, People believed. And then Acts 8:12, we we read this. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. And then in Acts 8:34, as Philip is interacting with the the Ethiopian eunuch and sharing with him about the good news of Jesus from the Old Testament. Here they are, they're, they're going along and they see some water. And the eunuch says to Philip, what prevents me from being baptized? Here's some water. What prevents me from being baptized? In other words, he's heard the gospel. He wants to express his faith in Jesus Christ by being immersed in the water, by being baptized. And so they both go down to the water, and Philip baptized him, and then they came up out of the water. So, baptism is for believers. It is for those who have placed their faith in Christ. And it pictured the gospel and one's identification with Jesus. This is the way the believers publicly express their allegiance to Jesus. In a very real and tangible way, the believers were immersed in water as an act of obedience to symbolize their union with Jesus Christ, right? So, so as they go into the water, right, they are dying with Christ, so to speak. They, they have died with Christ. And then they're under the water. They're buried with Jesus. And then they rise up out of the water. They are raised to walk in newness of life. Baptism pictures the gospel, it becomes a visible sign and symbol of one's faith in Jesus. Now, does baptism save you? No. Is baptism necessary for salvation? No. Think of the thief on the cross. Perfect example. Baptism does not add to. One salvation, or complete it. We are saved by grace alone through faith in Christ alone. Period. Baptism, then, is therefore an act of obedience for the person who is already saved, for the person who is already trusting in Jesus. It is a public testimony to the person's faith in Christ, when a person is baptized, when the person is immersed, that's what the word means, when a person is immersed, it is a public profession of the work of God in their life. It is a public profession of the inward change in the heart of the one who already belongs to Jesus. It is a visible expression and sign of our identification with Jesus. Okay, that's number one. Baptism. Number two, the Lord's Supper. So baptism is, is the ordinance that, that is part of the beginning stage of this discipleship process. Right? It's at the beginning. And baptism was, was the initiation right into the community of God's people. And it occurs once. The ordinance that Christ instituted for the church to be an ongoing practice Until his return is the Lord's Supper, which we'll partake of in a few moments. And this is what we see in in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians 11, page 958 in the Pew Bible. 958, 1 Corinthians 11, specifically verses 23 through 26. It's a larger section, but I'm going to read 23 through 26. Verse 23, For I receive from the Lord, this is Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth, For I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So in in this passage, Paul explains the Lord's Supper to the church in Corinth. The Lord's Supper was intended to unite the believers around sharing in a common meal, which pictured the body of Christ given for them and his blood shed for them. The meal displayed the humility and love that Jesus has For his people. And it became a visible expression of his love and concern for them. However, in Corinth, Paul has to discuss the the Lord's Supper because it was actually causing division in the church. What was intended to, to bring them together revealed a lack of unity and concern for one another. So Paul explains the meal. And you recall that on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he shared the Passover meal with his disciples. The Passover meal served as a reminder of how God had passed over the Israelites when they were slaves in Egypt. Right? The Israelites, they sacrificed a lamb, and they put the blood on the doors of their homes, and then when, when God passed through the night, he passed over them and spared their firstborn. And in this way, the rescue of his people from their bondage in Egypt was, happened. It, this is the way it happened. And this was the beginning of the Exodus. And so every year the Jews would, would celebrate this meal as they remembered what God had done for them. Each generation of Israelites identified with the Exodus from Egypt as they partook of the Passover meal together. And as Jesus partook of this meal with his followers, he gave it new significance. A greater act of deliverance was about to be accomplished by Jesus. right? A new exodus, a new rescue for God's people through his body and his blood. Luke twenty-two nineteen, 19, Jesus says this, And he took bread, This is what we read here. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, here's what he said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The disciples were to do this in remembrance of Jesus. When they partook of the meal together, they were to remember what Christ had done for them or what he would do for them. That Jesus sacrificed his body and his blood for his people so they might be delivered and rescued from their sins, from their bondage to sin, and so they might be brought into a right relationship with God through faith in him. So Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper and it was taught and passed on to the churches, which is what we see in 1 Corinthians, verse, verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. So Paul has received this from the Lord, and now he he passes it on to the church. Just as Moses, right? You recall Moses had passed on the instruction regarding the Passover meal to, to the people of Israel. And they celebrated and remembered what God had done for them. So now, here's the Apostle Paul, in a similar way, passing on to the church the instruction that he had received from the Lord concerning the Lord's Supper. And just as that Passover meal was central to the life of the Israelites and their experience, so now the Lord's Supper became central to the life of the church because it pictured in a visible way what Christ had done for them in dying on the cross for our sins a picture is worth a thousand words when you see the bread and we're going to do this in a moment when you, when you see the bread taken from, from one loaf this symbolized our union with Christ right? that we participate in the body of Christ as, as one people of God and this bread that you'll see as it's passed out is broken. It's broken. And it's given for you. This picture is Christ's body being given for us. And the cup, as we partake of that together, we are reminded that Christ died a violent death. Right? His blood is poured out. His blood was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. And so as we see these elements and partake of them together, we are proclaiming Christ's death until he comes. And in doing so, we, as we celebrate this meal right, together in faith and as we obey Christ's command, we are nourished and strengthened as his followers. And now third and finally, how do, how do we apply this? Right? You can see this in your outline. What are the practical implications for us? Right? We've covered this as a church What are the practical implications for us as individuals and as a church? How do we apply this? What do we make of the ordinances? What significance do they have for us? First, since baptism and the Lord's Supper were instituted by Christ and taught by the apostles and practiced by the early church, Then, out of obedience to Christ, out of a desire to grow in this discipleship process, we should be baptized and partake of the Lord's Supper. Let me me back up a step. First, we need to repent of our sins and place our faith in Jesus Christ. First, Since baptism is an outward picture, right? You see the water dying with Christ, being buried, and then rising. That's a picture. Since, Since baptism is a picture of an inward change, that I really have died with Christ, have been buried, and have risen to walk in newness of life, that's really happened inwardly, that we are identifying in his death, burial, and resurrection, then we must first believe in him. Second, Since baptism and the Lord's Supper are outward pictures of the gospel, then we must not base our salvation on whether or not we've been baptized or partake of the meal. Do not base your salvation, your relationship with God, on your baptism. Or on whether or not you eat the bread and drink the cup that we we, that we pass. There is a danger. There is a danger that we could say, my relationship with God is secure. I was baptized when I was six. At the same time, We could also risk falling to the other extreme. If baptism isn't necessary for salvation, if the Lord's Supper isn't necessary for for salvation, if they aren't the means of salvation, if they don't add to or complete my salvation, which they don't, then what benefit is there in doing these two ordinances? Why bother? To which I might reply, just because Johnny, Kate, Ellie, and Ben are my children, and nothing will change that? And just because obeying me doesn't add to or make them more my children, does that mean that they shouldn't obey? does that mean that there is no benefit in obedience? Rather, they, they strive to obey out of my love for them and their love for me. So also, should we not strive as children of God, as believers in Christ, to obey the commands of Christ? We need to ask ourselves, what does Scripture Say, and am I willing to obey what Christ has commanded? No matter the cost, and not just in reference to these two things, right? Not just reference to baptism or, or the Lord's Supper, but in everything, am I willing to obey Christ in other countries? And Grace could probably attest to this. In other countries, in fact, even in our own state, I've heard stories how the new believer desires to be baptized. And he knows that it might cost him his life. This actually was what was going to happen in the early church, right? It might cost him his life. It might cost him never to return home again. It might result in being disowned by family. There is a real danger for some of these young Christians, but out of their desire to obey Christ and display a love for Him, they are immersed in water in order to express their allegiance to Jesus. It's remarkable. Another, another practical implication of these ordinances is the responsibility to examine ourselves. Right? That's what Paul will draw out in this passage. Before we partake of the meal together, we must examine ourselves in light of Scripture. Right? It's not this, as we partake of this meal. It's not, I'm a pretty good person. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a good person, so it's okay if I eat the bread and drink the juice. No, no. Rather, we examine ourselves and we see to it that we have confessed our sins, that we have repented of our sins, that we're not holding to our sin, right? We release that, not hold too tightly, not hold tightly at all, in fact. And we trust in Christ's work, not our own. We come to the table because of what Jesus has done, not what we have done. So we, we, before we partake of the meal, I will allot the time in which we'll examine ourselves. Okay? So practically, we'll, we'll do this. And lastly, as far as a practical implication for the church regarding baptism and the Lord's Supper, we see this. Since baptism is the outward sign of the inward change, and since baptism is the initiatory act for those who belong to Christ, and since baptism doesn't save you, but is an expression of our faith in Christ, then we as a church baptize believers. We immerse in water those who are following Christ as their Savior and Lord. There is not an age restriction, but it is for those who, who publicly identify with Christ, who desire to publicly identify With Christ and express their faith in Him. Now, does this mean a church must immediately baptize someone because they desire to be baptized? No. For example, my child, I use my children as examples, my child might want to be baptized because their sibling is being baptized. Or they might want to be baptized because their friend is being baptized. Or they are feeling pressure from their family to be baptized. Or they might want to be baptized because they heard a sermon about baptism. Or they think it would be neat to get into a pool of water. Right? they get neat to get into a pool. I want to be baptized because I like swimming. I like being dunked in the water. Or... They might want to be baptized because, as a believer, they want to obey Jesus and identify with Jesus. So, in a a real practical way, for for what we've sought to do with baptism in our own family, you're probably wondering, "What what do you do, Sean? Maybe you're not wondering that. I'll share what we do. We have them bring up a few times, okay? So, I preach on baptism. We have them bring it up a few times on their own. And what we do is we really seek to understand why they want to be baptized. Why do you really want to be baptized? And try to get to the heart of that. And by allowing them to bring it up on their own on several occasions, we are seeking to discern if the Holy Spirit is convicting them in this way. You just want to be baptized because you heard about it or because you really want to obey Christ. The Holy Spirit will convict us of sin, right? The Holy Spirit leads us and guides us and convicts us. In in regard to the Lord's Supper, so that's what we do in regard to baptism. In regard to the Lord's Supper, as, as practical implications as a church. When we partake of the meal, we're partaking in unity with one another to express our unity in Christ. So if you're a believer here, I'll mention this in a few moments as well. If you're a believer here, whether you're a member here or not, you can partake of the Lord's Supper with us. If you're a visitor here and you've placed your faith in Christ and you're trusting in Jesus alone for salvation, then we invite you to partake of this meal with us. Right, and So so as we see God's word on display, even in this few moments here in front of us, might he use them to nourish and strengthen our faith in him. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks. We give you thanks for what Jesus has done for us on the cross. Our desire is to obey him. And so even as we see a visible picture of the gospel in front of us, and as we partake of the Lord's Supper together, Might it unite us, and might our faith in Christ be strengthened and nourished as we proclaim Jesus until he comes again. We have this hope, and we are thankful for it. In Jesus' name, amen.